What I want to do tonight is just talk about how we are doing some of the stuff we're doing. Why is it in the media we read about transport in a perhaps different way than it's meant to be read? So I just want to think about what are some of the key issues facing transport at the moment? And I want to particularly look at the ones we read about in social media or we hear about on <coughs> talkback radio. The first one, potholes. Potholes are clearly the most important thing. They are talked about a lot. There are even some politicians not in this island, I just want to add, who have been campaigned and been elected to council almost entirely based on the fact that they are going to sort out and fix potholes. Second one, poor public transport. There are no bus drivers, buses are always late, they're dirty, they're smelly. And if any of you were brought up in the UK like I, they are, of course, the loser cruiser. Third one, cycleways. They're expensive and no one uses them. Yep, we hear that a lot in the media. So they're expensive, no one uses them, complete waste of money. Fourth one, it's impossible to get anywhere. The roads are so congested, there's roadworks everywhere, it's impossible to get around. We read about that a lot and it's on um, social media. And final one, we talk about climate change. But climate change, it's nothing to do with transport really. It's actually to do with cows. So why are we worrying about it? We need the farmers to sort their problem out first and then let the rest of us worry about the rest afterwards. And secondly, we're just a tiny country. We're a tiny country, the bottom of the world. Why should we do anything when China and India and America and Europe isn't doing anything? Now, they're kind of the things I think it's fair to say we hear and read about on um, certain types of uh, radio stations and in social media. So what actually are the challenges we're facing? The first one, we have far too many people dying on the roads every year. Last year, it was nearly 400. It's being it was going down really well until 2012. And since 2013, the numbers of people dying in crashes on the road has been going up every year, except for a COVID dip. That's not OK. That's not good enough. It's something we need to do something about. Um, our rates of people dying on the road are three times what they are in Norway and Sweden. They are double what they are in the UK, Spain, Denmark, Germany, Israel. I could keep listing countries. We are sadly far too high up in the league table of people dying on our roads. Some of you may have read or heard about a thing called Road to Zero. So Road to Zero is the, is the main driver of policy. What Road to Zero is about, it is not about stopping us driving and driving around fast. It is about accepting that people make mistakes. So historically, what we've done with road safety is we have tried to engineer it so that you can't make mistakes. What people are now saying is everybody, people are going to make mistakes. We can't do anything about that. Let us try and minimize the impact of those mistakes. So what we're trying to do is stop those mistakes becoming serious injuries and fatalities. So when people talk about road to zero, it's important to understand it's perhaps not quite what we think. It is about accepting mistakes happen and making sure those mistakes don't lead to really bad outcomes. Second challenge, <coughs> emissions. You will read a lot um, in government at the moment, with this current government, about the need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. And so in the Ministry of Transport, the number one driver of just about everything for the last three, four years has been emissions reduction. So transport is responsible for around 40% of our greenhouse gas emissions, just under 20% of our CO2 emissions. We need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2035. That is a target we signed up to as a country. Every political party 
Bar Act signed up to it. David Seymour had not in the room for some reason, so he actually didn't vote for it. But everyone else, it was basically unanimously voted. We have to meet these emissions targets of 40% reduction by 2035. The other thing, when we compare agriculture and transport, between 1990 and 2018, transport emissions went up 90%. In the same period, agricultural emissions went up 17%. So for people who are quick to say, we've got to look at agriculture, yes, agriculture's got to sort some stuff out, but let's just acknowledge that transport is the one that's growing fastest. And in many ways, transport is the one we can deal with quite easily. Agriculture is really complicated. There's a lot of employment and many other things, which I don't want to talk about because I'm not an expert on that at all. The other thing is, compared to many other countries in the world, our emissions per head of population are really high. We can't stand back and say, but look at China and India. They produce way more than us. Yes, they do. They've got over a billion people. But per head of population, we produce way more than them. Finally, on that, this point, there is a sense internationally that if countries don't pull their weight, particularly developed countries, other countries will stop trading with them. So we kind of have this obligation to set a standard and to behave like good global citizens. We can't stand back and say, look, we're really tiny. Let's not worry about this. It's not going to cut it anymore. Resilience. For those of you who've been in Christchurch more than a decade, we know what earthquakes are. We need to have a transport system that is resilient to natural hazards or natural disasters as good as, as much as possible. If anybody didn't think natural hazards were important, the events in North Island of the last three months have demonstrated how important they are. We need a transport network that is able to cope with these sorts of things, partly because we also know that we are causing them because of climate change. So climate change has caused something that we weren't ready for. We should have been ready. We need to make our transport system better able to cope with those things, but also not cause them as much. So we've got to be more resilient. Health and well-being. <coughs> New Zealand doesn't top the league table world of, in the world very often. One of the things we're in the top three for is obesity. Yes. We're arguably the third most obese country in the world. Now I'm making everyone who's sitting here eating chips feeling very guilty. Sorry about that. But <laughs> ironically, in fourth place is Hungary. Yeah, I know. Turkey's up there too. <clears throat> Our obesity rates are three times the Italians, the Swedes, the Norwegians, the Danes, the Dutch, and the French. So it's not just that we've got high rates of obesity, but we're really high compared to countries we would possibly say we want to compare ourselves with. What we also know in the context of transport is the countries when there are more people using active transport, so walking, cycling, but also using public transport, obesity rates are much layer, lower. There's a really nice graph I showed my students, some of them are here and they'll have seen it, which basically plots it. You get this per almost perfect inverse relationship between rates of active transport and obesity. We have very low rates of active transport with the Australians, with the Americans, and we have very high rates of obesity like the Australians and the Americans and others. Mental health. Mental health is one of the biggest challenges facing this country. COVID, it, it resurfaced with COVID. Every government report at the moment is talking about mental health that's coming out of the Ministry of Health. And we know there's a relationship between transport and mental health. We know that if you can get people walking and cycling, it's better for their mental health. There's a really neat report produced for Wakikotahi by some academics from Auckland, if you're interested in it. It's a really, really good read, and it explains those mechanisms and why this happens. And what we know is if you can get people walking and cycling and talking to each other in their communities, you improve mental health. So again, transport is, is a really important challenge, part of that challenge. 
Respiratory health. The recent happiness study, I don't know if any of you saw it, told us that over 2,000 people a year are dying from nitrogen dioxide, from, and it's all from vehicles. 2,000 people a year are dying from pollution, from one pollutant. And there's more coming from particulate matter as well. That's a really big number. We've only just confirmed the size of that number. But if we think climate change isn't a problem, then we could at least think of the stuff that's coming out of the tailpipes in the, through the same process that's also resulting in people dying from the respiratory illness. So another big challenge. Infrastructure, cost, and replacement. <clears throat> if Three Waters has done nothing else, it has probably united us in understanding that replacing infrastructure is really expensive. Research has shown that when we spread out as people, when we have low population density, infrastructure is way more expensive. And it's basically as simple as if you get two people in a house, you only need one pipe going to it. If you spread people out and have them in two houses, you need two pipes, so you need more. In the US, some research about seven or eight years ago said that the cost of infrastructure per person, or per household, sorry, was about $3,500 for people living in suburban areas and around $1,400 for people living in cities. Hugely more expensive to have people living spread out because you need more pipes, you need more roads, you need greater distances to travel for emergency services, you need more libraries, you need more schools, etc., because everyone's spread out further. And the final challenge I think transport is equipped to deal with and we're facing is one of equity. So just taking the example of deaths on the road, males are twice as likely to die on the roads as females. Um, Māori are two and a half times as likely to die on the roads. We don't know why. Research isn't clear. There are some you could speculate a bit, but we actually don't know why. But the reality is if we can reduce the number of people dying on the roads, we're actually helping Māori, we're helping males. We're also helping people in low-income communities because we know more people, are, you're more likely to die in a crash on the road if you live in a poor part of town. So if you live in a poor part of town, you're male and you're Māori, you've got really bad likely outcomes. So again, another good reason to do something about it. So what is the purpose of the transport system? You could argue it's to carry people from place to place. You could argue it's to um, manage the economy and make us prosperous. You could argue it's to fix potholes. But hopefully you don't think it's just to fit potholes. What increasingly people are doing is they're actually framing it in the same sort of framing that the Treasury's Living Standards Framework is using. And so in, in government, we talk about a system, a transport system, that improves well-being and livability. So actually, we're not just talking about moving people and moving staff. We're actually talking about improving people's well-being, improving livability. It's not just about moving stuff. It's much more holistic and much bigger picture. And so what we do is when we look at policies, so when we look at policies to try and improve transport or improve outcomes, we really need to look at multiple outcomes. And again, putting my Ministry of Transport hat on, in government they have what they call them the outcomes framework. And theoretically, we measure policies against five outcomes. The first one is inclusive access. So it's about access. It's about people being able to get to things. And I guess within there is equity, because you're actually trying to ensure everybody can get to stuff. And for some people who can't have a car or can't drive, you actually need to factor that in. The second one is health and safe, healthy and safe people. It's about pollution and not having 2,000 people a year dying from pollution. It's about making it a good choice for people to walk and cycle to places so they can get exercise when they're traveling. There's resilience and security. So it's about a transport system that's able to cope with the storms we had in North Island. It's a transport system that can recover quickly when we have earthquakes. 
Because in this country, it's not, when we, it's not if we have earthquakes, it's when we have earthquakes. And from now on, it's not if we have another storm, it's when we have another storm. We need to be better prepared for these sorts of things that are coming to us. The next one is economic prosperity. We do need a transport system that allows people to get to jobs, that it allows goods and services to get around. And so we start talking about things like, can we, can we use autonomous flying things or autonomous things running around or little drones or whatever? So we're starting to think about some of these. But we need to be able to move freight and we need to be able to move people. And the fifth one is environmental sustainability. So we want a system that is not harming people. We want a system that's good for biodiversity, does not pollute us, and probably most importantly at the moment is, is, is reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and leaving a better planet for the kids. Ideally, it's leaving a planet full stop for the kids because the way we're going, we're not going to have great outcomes. So if we think about these outcomes, I'm now going to think about some policies and you'll hopefully you'll start to understand why some of the policies actually are good at ticking or not good at ticking multiple outcomes. The first one I want to get out of the way <coughs> is so why don't we just electrify our vehicle fleet if we're talking about greenhouse gas emissions. So we can use EVs or hydrogen. Some of you may have read about hydrogen. I just want to mention hydrogen and, and EVs quickly. If you imagine you produce electricity, and the moment you produce it, you've got 100% of the electricity. By the time it's charging an electric vehicle, it, you're using about 77%. So you've lost about 23% of that electricity in the process of making it, transmitting it, etc., etc. For hydrogen, the number at the moment is about 33%. So hydrogen is, is less than 50% efficient as a form of powering a vehicle than an electric vehicle. It doesn't mean we don't want to use hydrogen for anything, but if we're going to move all our vehicles to hydrogen vehicles, we're going to have to produce a lot of electricity. There are other challenges of hydrogen vehicles, but the general consensus is that hydrogen is not the solution for moving people around in cars. That's electric, particularly in New Zealand, where most or nearly all of our electricity is produced sustainably. It's green electricity. So hydrogen is just incredibly inefficient use of electricity. So probably not the solution. The other thing about electrification of travel is it does nothing for physical activity. It does nothing for creating communities. It does nothing for many of the other outcomes we've talked about. It doesn't help with resilience and security or anything. All it does is change the nature of the vehicle from a vehicle we've got now to a new vehicle powered by a different fuel. Good for environmental sustainability, probably not going to help us with anything else. So that's our first policy. Second one. This isn't a controversial one at all. Reducing speed limits. Everybody wants reduced speed limits. That's, <coughs> yes. The thing about reduced speed limits, if you're driving a vehicle, if no, if you are hit, this is a bit depressing actually, if you're hit by a vehicle going 50 kilometers an hour, you have roughly, within a ballpark, about 10 or 20% chance of surviving alive. If you're hit by a vehicle going 30, you've got about a 90% chance of surviving. Now, some people argue about whether those figures are roughly but that's roughly it. In other words, if we can get vehicles slower, particularly in cities, it greatly increases the chances of people surviving crashes. It also reduces the accident, the, um, sorry, the serious injuries as well. So there's a really good reason for, for safety, and that's the primary reason for reducing speed limits, and that is you're less likely to die, so we will reduce the number of people dying on the roads. Secondly, we know if you look at vehicles and you look at greenhouse gas emissions, the optimum for a vehicle's speed is somewhere around 50 to 70 kilometers an hour. So a vehicle going smoothly between 50 and 70 kilometers an hour, that's probably a minimum emissions. In cities, it's a bit different. In cities, researchers looked at the impact of speed limits on emissions, 
and found that the optimum speed limit for lowest emissions is actually 30 kilometers an hour. It's actually 29 point something. 30 kilometers an hour. And the reason is, is that if you lower the speed limit, cars drive through much more smoothly. They're not stopping and starting. And so lower speed limits actually reduce emissions because they stop all the starting and stopping. And it's the stopping and starting that actually, every time you accelerate, it's a bit like driving faster. And so you reduce emissions. And there's really interesting research showing that. And for bigger vehicles than for some other pollutants, it's even slower. It's down at 20K. So there's really good reasons for greenhouse gas emissions purposes to reduce speed limits. Thirdly, reduced speed limits actually encourages people to walk and cycle, to stop and talk to their neighbours. It actually really slows down communities. And again, there's research that shows this. That if you can slow down communities, you slow down vehicles, people are more likely to cycle because they feel safer. They're more likely to walk. But also, relatively, journeys seem shorter by walking and cycling because you haven't got that differential between the perceived speed that you're actually travelling. So in other words, they, they encourage community. The other thing they do, reduce speed limits, and this is particularly in, in rural areas out on state highways, they, there is research that suggests that people will travel a certain amount of distance in a certain time. So it's called Marchetti's Constant. The idea is people were prepared to travel 30 miles, about, sorry, about 30 minutes to go and to from work. So if you make you can travel faster, you're prepared to travel further. So it's lower speed limits actually discouraging, discourage people from driving further, particularly for regular journeys. So there's a real benefit in that as well. So it suppresses demand. Similarly, if you increase speed limits, you're actually likely to induce demand. You encourage people to travel a bit more. So there's a concept called induced and suppressed demand. <coughs> so that's a bit on speed limits. There's multiple benefits. The next one I want to talk a little bit about is about cycleways. Again, not at all controversial in any of our cities. <coughs> but there's certainly an, a sense that cycleways are really expensive. First point I want to make is they're generally not as expensive as people think. So two things happen. One is when a cycleway is built, it often is being built as part of a bigger project. So the most obvious one is the one in Wellington where they are building four-kilometre seawall. And the seawall is being built to stop flooding getting onto the railway and the road, and they're putting a cycleway on top of the seawall. The seawall is costing $200 million, so it's expensive. The problem is the seawall is coming out of a cycling budget, so it's portrayed and given over as a cycle project. So it's a cycleway that costs $200 million for four kilometres. But it's not a cycleway. It's a seawall that just happens to have a cycleway on top. And unfortunately, the media do like to see these things and kind of come out and say, look at that expensive cycleway. The second thing is about cycleways is often people pick the bit that's expensive. So let's look at some of the ones in, in Christchurch. Many of them are really cheap. So if any of you cycle out to the university, part of that is just on a, on a road where they've just slightly they've slowed traffic speeds, they put some arrows on the road. That's the cycleway. That's not much more than the cost of the paint. But in other parts of the city, we have to put expensive separation in. So sometimes what people do is they, they point and they go, this part of the cycleway is expensive. Look, aren't they expensive? But actually, if you look overall, they're not as expensive as, as people say. The other thing about cycleways <coughs> is in transport, a traditional way of calculating whether you should build a project is with a thing called a benefit-cost ratio. Now, economists are probably getting very excited at this. I'm not an economist, but I'm going to give you the very lay summary. Benefit-cost ratio looks at how much something costs and you put a number on it, and they look at how much benefit accrues from that cost, and you put a number on it. So what you do is you say, well, this is going to cost $100. The benefit's $100. Your benefit-cost ratio is 1. 
With a transport project, you would never do a project with a benefit cost ratio less than one. And generally, you would never really do one with a benefit cost ratio less than two. The cycleways in Christchurch, when they calculated the benefit cost ratios, the benefit cost ratio was eight. At the same time, we were building <coughs> or planning some roads called the Roads of National Significance. This is probably 10 years ago. The benefit cost ratio for the Roads of National Significance varied between three for the highest one and 0.8, less than one. And that went ahead because someone said, oh, it's not really a, a project, it's a, it's a resilience project. So they changed the rules. But you've just got to remember that the benefit cost ratios of cycleways is generally very high, almost exclusively very high. One other point to make <coughs> uh, is what, why do we need cycleways? Why do we need good cycleways? The reason we knew, need good cycleways is we know from research that the thing that stops some people cycling is they don't feel safe. So we did some research, I did some research with an engineer called Glenn Curry about 10 years ago for Wakakatahi. We did the study and very clearly it came out and said people will cycle more if they feel safe. And to make people feel safe, you have to keep them away from fast-moving traffic. And that means in some cases you have to do physical separation, and in other cases you build infrastructure or you put paint on the road on really quiet streets. So we know what the answer is. We have to build separated infrastructure, and people will cycle. Now, the other thing is that not everybody will cycle. Some research done in the United States, by originally in Portland, by a planner there, he said there are, you can divide the likelihood of people cycling into four types of people. He said there are about 1% of people, get my numbers, or about 2% of people, sorry, are strong and fearless. They will cycle whatever you do. They will cycle on a state highway at the busiest time of year. The next group are people, and he calls them enthused and confident. There's about 3% of people. If you put a little bit of paint on the road or there's not too much traffic, those people will cycle. So about 5% of people will cycle with very little infrastructure. At the other end of the equation, about a third of people will never cycle. Nothing you do will make them cycle. You can do gold-plated, you could offer free breakfast, you could give them an e-bike. They're not going to cycle. That's okay. But in the middle, the 60% of people who he calls interested but concerned, they are people who kind of like the idea of cycling, but they're concerned because they don't feel safe. And so if you look at any country in the world, it's very rare anyone gets more than those 60% plus the five, the 65% people. Even in the Netherlands, the cities with the highest rates rarely get above 65% because there's this group who will never cycle. And the thing about the group who will never cycle is they're the ones who grumble. Not all of them, only some of them. It's very quickly point out. But the people who grumble and complain and go to the media and say the cycle is, they're probably part of the 33%. Not all of them. Some of those 33% think cycling is a good idea. It's just not for them. We've just got to remember that. They, and this research from Portland has been applied in other cities in the world, and people come up with the same numbers. It's always around 60-ish, always around 30-ish, and always around 4 or 5 at the other end. So that seems to apply, and it's been done in some work in Christchurch. One final point on cycleways. Some research done by people at Oxford University, so it's kind of okay research. Oxford University is quite a good university, um, I gather, have said that investing in cycling is 10 times more effective for reducing greenhouse gas emissions than, electrify, uh, than electric vehicles. So they said cycling actually is 10 times more effective. I can give you the reference if you want to read it, but I'm not going to explain why this is the interest of time. But they said it's, it's a really good way of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So cycling is actually good for that as well. I just want to spend the last few minutes talking about some examples of policies 
in different places that have been done, just to sort of exhibit one of the, some of the examples of things and how they've worked. The first one I want to talk about is a thing called superblocks. Now, superblocks originated in Barcelona. They've now spread all through Spain. They're being trialled in other parts of the world. They're being talked about very seriously in Melbourne. And people are starting to have conversations in Christchurch. And what a superblock is, and it works really well in cities where the roads are on a grid, like Christchurch. So they could work really well here. If you imagine, you basically close every second street to through traffic. You don't close it. You can still drive to your home, but you stop people driving down those streets to act to go through the street. You still make it easy for walking and cycling, so you can still access it there, but you can't drive through. So basically, you block streets to through traffic. They've done them in all through Barcelona now. They are finding significantly positive outcomes. So I'm just going to read some of them. <coughs> they found a 20% reduction in car travel, a 24% reduction in nitrogen dioxide levels, a reduction in noise levels, a threefold increase in green space because you use some of that space where the road was, you, you plant it out, and a 20% drop in surface temperature. So they found really good outcomes. They are applying them in a town called Vitoria Gastiz in Spain as well. So Vitoria Gastiz is a city that, of about 200,000 that Christchurch is starting to have conversations with. They've implemented the same things, and they're seeing some really amazing outcomes as well. They're seeing big reductions in people driving, improvements in air quality, improvements in fit fitness and well-being, and all sorts of other outcomes. So superblocks, you may start hearing the term. Um, you may start people starting to talk about them. You may, they may not call them superblocks, but if you, talk about, if you hear people talking about the idea of restricting traffic through traffic, then that's kind of the concept of the superblock. Next one I want to talk about, which is a sort of variant of that, is a, is a thing called filtered permeability. And the city that's probably done it best is a city called Houghton in the Netherlands. And what they do is they, they have created, in essence, a new town. They have station in the middle. You can drive round the town. You can drive into the town, but you can't drive through the town. You can cycle and walk through the town. So what it does is it stops people driving through because they drive round and into their own community. But once you're in the town, people walk and cycle. They're not being stopped from driving, but walking and cycling becomes so attractive that people choose to do it. And so here you might talk about, they sometimes talk about things called modal filters or modal sifters. But again, it's the idea that you cr you're filtering the permeability. So you're making it very easy to walk and cycle and you're slightly restricting people from driving straight through. It's a little bit like the superblocks, but it's slightly different and can be done in slightly different ways. Finally, I want to just mention a couple of studies in Christchurch that we've been involved with. One is we did a study and we examined the relationship between social interaction and traffic volume on streets. We did it in Papua Nui and Barrington, just so, to, so you believe it's really Christchurch. It's, we reproduced some research from the United States, and what we found is that in, in communities where there was less traffic, people knew far more of their neighbours. People knew way more of their neighbours than in, in communities and cities where there was oh, sorry, in streets when there was lots of traffic. So again, if we can reduce traffic, you increase social interaction. Social interaction is good for mental well-being. It's also really good for resilience. Communities that face natural disasters get back on their feet if neighbours and people know each other. And one way to get people to know each other is you, you have lower traffic volumes and lower traffic speeds as well. The second one is um, a street very near where I live, where uh, it's actually where I live, where 
we, there were some roadworks in Christchurch. Everyone knows about roadworks. There were some roadworks closed the street for 12 weeks. And the first weekend it was closed, one of the neighbours said, let's play basketball on the street. And he got the basketball net and all the kids were playing. And everyone thought it was me because they knew I talked about this sort of stuff. And I said, I know nothing about it. <laughs> and the second weekend he said, let's play cricket. And he got the cricket stumps out. And this was on a street where people lived and where there were cars, but it was temporarily blocked to through traffic. So with some colleagues, we did some research. I didn't personally do these because I'm a conflict of interest and ethics, but we did some interviews with people living on the street. And everybody said, we want this to stay like this. We know it's a little bit inconvenient because we have to drive slightly further, but we love the fact that our kids can play on the street. And so um, that, that's another example of what can happen if we just change the way our streets look. It's not depowering the car, it's just making it slightly more attractive for people to get out of their homes and walk and cycle. Next example, people talked about places where they could bump into each other. People said, we really like bumping into each other. People talked about places where they could gather. And so these are, in some cases, it can just be a park bench. Um, it can be a basketball hoop. It could be somewhere to sit. It could be a swing. But places where people can gather on streets. And those streets tend to be streets where the traffic is slightly slower and where there is perhaps less traffic. But it's also really important in terms of urban design that you have places people can gather. Local pubs, local cafes, schools are really good, so local schools. And many of us in Christchurch went through a situation where the government closed schools and had bigger schools. It might be cheaper to run education, but that's not good for community because a local school is really important. So these kind of bumping and gathering places are really important, and they can be retrofitted. You don't have to build them when you create communities. You can put a basketball hoop out or a, or a bench on your street. They're also really good for encouraging people who have some sort of disability to walk further. Because we know particularly older people, when they go out walking, they need to be able to sit down reasonably regularly. And so putting things like park benches out is really good for that as well. I'm just going to end by saying one thing. To me, what transport policy in this country is about is we have invested, like many countries in the world, we're not unique, in making it really easy to drive cars. We've invested in it for 40, 50, 60 years. And we have underinvested in walking, cycling, and public transport. So even until about two years ago, we, we spent less than, I think, 2 or 3% of our transport budget on walking and cycling. I think now we may be up to 5%. So when people say we spend all this money on walking and cycling, even now, when we're actually starting to invest in it, it's still less than 5%. It was less than 2% for many years. And so what we know is, there's a concept in, in cycling research called build it and they will come. The idea is that if you build a cycleway, people will come and use it. The thing about build it and they will come is it actually applies to all forms of transport. You can't, for many people, cycling is not a choice if they have no cycle infrastructure because it's, it, they feel scared. For many people, they can't get to work by public transport because there is no public transport. But once we know from research in this country, we know from research all around the world that if you provide good public transport, you provide good walking infrastructure, and you provide good cycling infrastructure, many people choose to use those forms of transport. In this country, for many years, we've provided really good infrastructure for driving, and so everybody drives. What we need to do is turn the ship around and provide choices. We're not f no one in government or in transport policy is forcing people out of cars. What they're saying is, let's create choices so you have choices to make and you can actually choose to travel by a different mode if you want to. So that's all I'm going to say. Thank you very much. Uh, what role do you see 
train-based transport having and coastal shipping having in improving our transport network in New Zealand? The problem we're seeing with trains or anything on a track is it's really expensive. We're seeing it really in Auckland at the moment. It, there's no doubt that a fixed rail system will encourage people to use it. So anything that... It's just more attractive, it's more stable, it's more comfortable than, than a bus. But the reality is it's really, really expensive. I think there is a case for it in certain places. But there are other technologies coming out, so there's things like trackless trams, and, uh, and people get a bit heads up about trackless trams, they just go with their glorified bus. I think at the moment we don't know, but we need to keep abreast of some of those technologies as well. We certainly need good quality mass transit. And it may be track-based, but maybe we also ought, to, also ought to be looking at alternatives that are more attractive than a regular bus, but perhaps slightly cheaper than a tram. In terms of <coughs> um, coastal shipping, yes, we absolutely should use more. Um, it does need some investment. We need to invest in our ports. Um, the other thing about trains, sorry, long-distance trains, for instance, our infrastructure is so poor, it needs a huge investment. So one example, if we want to put trains in Christchurch, most of the rail lines in Christchurch are single track. It's really difficult to have two trains passing on a single track train, obviously. <laughs> so ultimately, we need to double track the whole lot. We have a really antiquated form of signalling, so we need to fix that. So it needs this massive upfront investment to fix a whole load of stuff. It's also the wrong gauge in places. So there's lots of logistical problems about intercity rail. And at some point, we need to make a decision and say we're going to go for it, because it does take tens of, you know, if Auckland Light Rail, they start building it tomorrow, it'll still be four, five, six, seven years before anyone's sitting on a train. How we reduce how much we travel should be the very top of the policy hierarchy. Can you comment on that? Because all your policies sounded like, let's just keep travelling as we're doing, but change modes. At the moment in government, the thinking is that to reduce our emissions and meet our emissions targets, we need to improve or change the fuel will cover about 60% of the reduction, but we actually need to reduce the amount we travel and shift mode. So you're right, there's avoid, shift and improve. Avoid is avoiding travel, shift is shifting mode and improve is electrification. We need to avoid, and one of the best ways to avoid is actually about urban design a bit. We need to, that's what part of the reason for density. We can enc encourage people to do things like working from home, but that's not you know, there, there are problems with working from home as well. We know people like social interaction. Some um, jobs are better when you're face-to-face. -face. So you're absolutely right. We need to avoid travelling as well. Where do you see autonomous self-driving vehicles in our future here? You know, we have degrees of autonomy. And already Teslas and some cars and even people have power-assisted or, or steering assist and all sorts of things. When we will get to the point where we have fully autonomous vehicles in the future is going to be complicated because we've, got, we've also got that point where we have a mixture of the two. I think, to some extent, or there will be a role for autonomous vehicles in the future, but it's certainly not one we want to rely on now because we don't know what it's going to look like. There's also some legal challenges. And one, of, one question I ask you, with an autonomous vehicle, you have to program an autonomous vehicle when it has to hit somebody, who does it hit? Do you hit your mum or do you hit your child? That's not rhetorical. What's the answer? So actually, there are really there's technical challenges, but there are ethical challenges about what we do with autonomous vehicles because you have to program the computer to make those sorts of decisions, and it's a really hard one. So I wouldn't put I wouldn't put all your money on autonomous vehicles yet. I'm looking at someone who knows, and I think he's agreeing with me. I um, commute quite a lot by bike, and my biggest worry is: will my bike still be there when I come out? 
if there has anyone in the city council or anywhere else that you think of come up with a solution for people to be able to actually put their bikes somewhere safely? Yeah. Th th there are solutions. That one is you can get better locks. And I'm not saying you haven't got a good lock, but good locks really help. And there are other solutions. Like at the university, we have card access lockable sheds yeah. with cameras. And so there are things like that. We need to do better. In your opinion, what are the top three countries with the best transport uh, systems that you know? The Netherlands is clearly the example everyone says. I think, I mean, I, I don't, Germany's very good. Um, they're nearly all in Europe. Denmark, obviously, for cycling. Switzerland for public transport. Switzerland is amazing public transport. But we can learn. There's actually really good places we can learn in other parts of the world. So this, this city, Vittoria Gastiz, has done heaps of stuff literally in the last five, 15 years, and they've transformed the way people are traveling. Portland in the US is doing some really cool stuff. So it's a good question. I would say Netherlands, Denmark, Germany. But I actually think we can learn from places that are not those ones, because sometimes we might name those countries, and people go, we're not like them. It's too difficult. But if we name places that are a bit more like us, we can, we can actually learn some really cool things too. A question about multimodal journeys. Like, what's your thought on that one? Like, uh, as we discussed, there might be some uh, many people who might be interested to bike or use active modes or public transport, but might not have access to where they are living. Like, say for example, someone coming to work from Selwyn mm. to Christchurch every day. Um, uh, like, it could be a half and half, like kind of uh, uh, drive halfway in a public transport or something. It might be happening informally now by many people. For, uh, but many people might be doing that. But uh, I <clears> think there, there might be a lack of uh, formal facilities for that much. So what's yeah. your... One way to incentivize it is that the bus part of their journey is faster than the car. So this is when you start talking about bus lanes, bus priority, and then you cycle, you're right. The shared scooter... Um, industry. One of their big selling points when they come into cities is that they say we will become the last and the, the last part and the first part of the journey. The research is telling us that, that most of those journeys aren't that, but I guess if some of them are, that's good. Because what you do want people to do is encourage people to cycle to bus stops or use a scooter or something. And that then also comes into the issue of locking. So if you're going to encourage that, where the bus starts in Rolleston and drives into town, you need really good bike lockers or you need shuttle buses. And so we've got to start being a little more sophisticated about some of that. But in many ways, I think it come back to my earlier comment. It is like turning a ship round. We, we have been going in one direction for decades, and we're trying to turn it round. And so you start with your best wins, and your best wins are putting infrastructure in, putting cycleways at cycle lock it, lockable cycle sheds at the university and the bus station, and then start trying to get onto where we'll put a nice, good, lockable bike shed at the, where the, the um, bus comes in from Wollaston. And so we totally want to include. And the other, the other thing, there is a mindset about changing journeys. So we know with, bu with buses, if you have to change bus, that's a big barrier to people. And it's, it's nearly always a much worse barrier than, than it actually is. It's a perceived barrier. So even a really fast turnaround, people don't want to do it. People want to divert routes. So we've got to start changing some of those perceptions. And one way you can do that is, of course, is really good um, things like integrated ticketing, which we do have in Christchurch, but also apps that allow you to know where the bus is. And so people are starting to develop things like that. So you have confidence what time your bus is going to be there and what time the change is, and, and you can actually understand it. So good information as well. Everything that we've talked about tonight requires good urban design. Yeah. How do we get such a disconnect with our politicians to then bring out that throwing all the urban design rules out, resource consent designs out with housing density? There are some examples where government has tried to do it and 
people don't like it. So the whole thing about increasing density, three stories in Christchurch, people rebelled and said they didn't like it. So they're, some things they're trying. Um, some people would say, I think Phil Twyford would say that when he was Minister of Transport and Housing, the most significant thing he did was take off the minimum requirement or the requirement to have a minimum number of parking spaces in, in, in developments. <coughs> so we're trying to do some of that. So you're starting to see more higher density apartment living in Christchurch. There are some questions about quality, or not quality, but maybe about um, um, livability of it. So there's some really good examples where people have shared, shared gardens and things. And here we still tend to, partly because of our legal rules, we tend to have one house and one section and lots of um, concrete. So some things about that. But I think <coughs> people are aware of that. And we're trying to head in the right direction. One point I'd say about that, actually, is whenever there is the government says, can you submit on something, or local council submits on something, and you think we need to increase density, people who think it's okay tend not to submit. People who don't like something submit and say they don't like it. So I think we, as, an, as a community, we need to start putting submissions in saying, we think this is a good idea, please go ahead with it, because we don't. And so the people who are anti-things often, their voice is heard really loudly and clearly, and the people who like stuff, it isn't. So that's a challenge for anyone. Um, given that you said that the there's 60% of people who are kind of needing encouragement to, to cycle and that there's a, was it, 10 times bigger bang for buck on cycling infrastructure than other investments, yeah. um, what's the benefit-cost ratio of applying the fee-bait system to things like e-bikes? Does it just not stack up or is it just politics? So, good question. The fee-bait scheme, as you've seen in the announcement this morning, has been too successful, right? So they're actually having to change the goalposts because it's meant to be pay itself out. So the problem with the fee bait for e-bikes, you can't, you can't have the other side to it. So the, I don't know if you know, the fee bait scheme is meant to be cost neutral. So every subsidy they give to someone buying an electric vehicle, they're recouping the money on someone having a high polluting vehicle. So you can't have the same scheme on an e-bike because there is no kind of opposite one in a way, I think. The other thing about the e-bike one that is a genuine one is when it was first talked about, it was about two or three years ago, and then COVID happened, and there was conversations about it in government, and the problem then was there, was, there were no e-bikes. So if you tried to buy an e-bike three years ago, you couldn't get one. Two years ago, you couldn't get one. Suddenly, they are available again. So when that conversation initially had, there was an issue of supply and demand, or supply. The other part of it is, the sense is that an e-bike is going to struggle to even get the cheapest e-bike much below $2,000. And how do you get e-bikes into... We sh do we think it's appropriate to give subsidies for e-bikes to people who can afford a $2,000 bike? Because we tend to be wealthier people. So one thing that is happening in government, and uh, I'm involved in a research project in this, they are looking at schemes to get e-bikes into communities who can't afford e-bikes. So there's a trial going on in Wainui Yamata, there's a trial in Mangare, and there's actually a trial, there's a trial in Christchurch happening at the moment with social housing tenants and e-bikes. So there are ways to look at clever ways to get e-bikes into low-income communities. And the main reason about an e-bike subsidy is just because it's how much is it going to cost and are we actually giving subsidy to wealthy people? It doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but they're the sort of questions. So they really come down to equity. But yeah, it may happen. Christchurch has five of the top ten electorates in New Zealand for mode share for people that use a bike to get to work, which is pretty good, but... Um, the percentages for those five electorates are between 3.3% and 7%, which is quite a lot lower than the 65% yeah. of people that you mentioned who are either interested or concerned or strong and fearless, or whatever the names were. Um, 
even though Christchurch has already built most of the planned major cycleways, um, what do you think the reason for the percentages still being quite low is, and what do we need to do to get them higher? For many journeys, you still have to go on quite dangerous bits of road. You need to start filling in those gaps. So if you're right, what, we, what we know is that people who live near the major cycleways, you get higher rates of cycling amongst people who live near them because they use them. But there are many parts of town where you can't use them. And also, for some people, they might use a major cycleway and think this is great, and then they have to cross some horrific junction, and that, that'll be enough to stop them cycling. So we need to keep doing it. We also, the other side of the equation is, still is really pretty easy driving. So if you go to other countries, they make, you know, we don't have filtered permeability, so we don't have it more direct. The most direct routes are not by bicycle. You go to the Netherlands, there are places that it's much easier to access by bike than it is by car. And here it's really easy to access anyway by car. So we actually need to start reframing re some of that stuff, and we need to reallocate some road space away from cars, pro probably because it's still pretty easy to use cars. But we need to keep investing in cycleways. We've seen a dramatic increase in cycle use in Christchurch over the last few years. And the highest census area is 13%. So it's actually in Beckenham. The highest in the country is Beckenham, which is great. That's where I live, so I'm happy.